But we're going to go to 1 Samuel chapter 30. We've got the scriptures that go up there. Um, but it, uh, and I want to, I want to kind of, you know, a lot of times when I go to a, a church, um, they're, you know, fundraising for what we do. Um, but here, whatever, whatever you take away from this message, I want you to kind of carry that over into what Anna and Andrew are going to be there to help us do. And so, um, you know, whatever God stirs in your heart tonight about missions, about uh, participating in missions in any, any capacity, I want you to direct that towards them because uh, they've, got a, they've got a mountain to climb here to, to get ready to, to go to the field. And so I know they can do it. We'll, we'll be there to support them to do it. And I know you guys will be too. So, but, um, but, but God's good. He's faithful to his word. He's faithful to his call. And so we, uh, we trust him to do that. I was going to joke with you guys and tell you it's going to make you preach tonight, but I figured... You'll have to do that some other time. So you are going to make them preach at some point, right? Or like share or get up in front of people? Yes. Okay, good. It's good. All right. So we're going to go to First Samuel chapter 30. Read the first four verses. We're going to read a lot, really, but we'll read the first four verses to start. It says, three days later, when David and his men arrived at their hometown of Ziklag, they found the Amalekites had made a raid into the Negev and Ziklag. They'd crushed Ziklag and burned it to the ground. They'd carried off the women and children and everyone else, but without killing anyone. When David and his men saw the ruins and realized what had happened to their families, they wept until they could weep no more. Now, this is, um, this is kind of a hard intro scripture just because of all the weird names. Okay, so let me, let me clean up the weird names for you. Um, it says they go into Ziklag. Ziklag is just the name of a town. Substitute name of town that you can pronounce better, okay? Because um, to me, at this point, it's not important you know exactly where this happened. It's important that you know what happened. So the Amalekites were a group of people that didn't really care for anyone. <laughs> they were just kind of uh, out, to, out to get whatever they could get. And so, so the Amalekites are just a group of people, okay? Ziklag's the name of a town. And they say that they went through the, the that this group of Amalekites had gone raiding through the, uh, the Negev, which is just a region um, around Israel. And so I don't want you to get bogged down. You know, too often in scripture, especially when, when we're young, it's easy to get so tied up in all the names and trying to pronounce everything right that we miss the point. So I'm not telling you those things are not important anytime, but tonight, not important. Don't worry about names or, or pronouncing everything right. I want you to get the point. Is that all right? Okay. So David had been out to fight a battle with his, his uh, little army. David had an army of 600 guys and these guys absolutely qualify as the baddest dudes on the planet. They are literally an unbeatable army. 600 guys that can take on any army of any size with any training, and they will win. They will not lose a person. And it happened consistently through Scripture. So these, uh, these 600 guys are a fearsome group. They had gone out to a battle. They ultimately didn't fight. There's a whole other story in that that's pretty cool, but we won't, we won't talk about that one tonight. They come back. And David had been living in Philistine territory, because if any of you guys remember, Philistine's just another group of people, but usually the Philistines are trying to kill the, the Israelites. In this case, David had kind of made friends and was living in their territory because his king was trying to kill him. It's kind of soap opera-ish, isn't it, a little bit? I mean, people always say the Bible's boring. It's not interesting. There is nothing boring about this. There's people trying to kill each other. They're hunting each other down. You know, there's... Uh, there's all kinds of stuff. I won't even go into all of it, but read the book of Genesis. There is not a soap opera on the planet or a nighttime drama that can compare with the book of Genesis. That is some, there's some crazy stuff that's happening in there. 
So, um, so David and his men, they come back home, and they realize that while they've been gone, the Amalekites, this other group, had come in, totally destroyed their city, totally destroyed their homes, had captured all the women and children. The word says they didn't kill anyone. They, they captured all the women and children, and they take them off. And so um, David had been traveling home for three days. The, what, the only things we really know about the time frame here is that David had traveled out at least three days, had been at this battleground, I don't know exactly how long, didn't end up fighting, came back three days, okay? So he's been away from home for a little while, and while they're gone, all this stuff happens. And what I think is really interesting about what happens when they come back is here you've got the most fearsome army on the planet, and when they come home and find out that their wives and kids have been taken captive, they bawl like little kids. And, um, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of different theories about why they did that. You know, you um, talk to a bunch of, of ministers, and they'll give you a bunch of different opinions on that. And I got my opinion on that. And um, I think that, that really what happened here is they came in, and for David especially, I don't know that it was so much that... Uh, that they had been captured because I think David knew that his army could take on any other army. I don't think it was like this hopelessness necessarily. But I, I tend to believe this is not in Scripture, so if you don't like this, just throw it out, okay? There's a lot of conjecture that goes into preaching, and I don't want to confuse you with any of that. So this is my opinion on this. But David comes in, and he's brokenhearted because the defenseless people had been taken advantage of. I'm not saying that women can't fight, but in those days, women were not trained to fight, okay? Had they been trained, would have made a wonderful army, but they were not trained to fight. The children couldn't fight for themselves. So this invading army comes in, they take advantage of the weakness of the people there, these defenseless people, and they take them captive. Because I can't find another reason that David would just come in and start bawling. He knows he can handle these guys. He knows he can take care of them. But something about, you know, we hear that David's the man after God's heart. And something about the heart of God, I believe, cries out to the heart of David because the defenseless had been taken advantage of. Amen. And there's something inside of us as believers, as followers of Christ, that has to cry out when we see defenseless people being taken advantage of. It has to happen. And when I, when I say defenseless people, you might have a lot of different images in your head of what that means, but let me define it for you. People who are away from God have no ability to defend themselves against the enemy. I'm not a person who blames a lot of things on the devil. I think we make a lot of really stupid decisions on our own. <laughs> we don't really need the devil's help a lot of times to cause trouble, but that doesn't negate the fact, it doesn't take it away that we do have an enemy and he is up to no good. And he is uh, preying on the weak and the defenseless, people who spiritually cannot defend themselves. In other words, people who are not in good relationship with Jesus Christ. And so there's got to be something inside of us that rises up. There's got to be something in us that cries out. There's got to be something in us that breaks with compassion when we see that the defenseless are being taken advantage of. And I personally believe that that's what happens here with David. I don't think it's a helplessness. I don't think it's David crying because he doesn't know what to do. David knows what to do. David's a man of war. He knows exactly what to do. But what, what, what's, what's hitting him in that moment is that somebody came in and attacked people who couldn't defend themselves, God's people who couldn't defend themselves, people created in the image of God. 
And so there's got to be something in us as believers that does the same thing. Now, we're going to move on. We're going to talk about a lot of different parts of the story. But I don't want you to lose that idea of being broken for the lost, of being brokenhearted. It doesn't even say that they just cried a little bit, you know. This isn't some, some reality show little tear that comes off the side, you know, or something like that. This is, it says they wept until they could weep no more. Can you imagine the 600 strongest, most powerful men on the planet weeping until they can weep no more. That is, there's something supernatural about that. There's something of the heart of God that's moved upon these men in that moment. We won't read this part, but I think it's interesting that David, being a man of war, knowing exactly what to do, he doesn't just go straight out after the guys. He asks God first. Because David knows that just because there's a battle to be fought doesn't mean it's your battle to be fought. And I want you to remember that. We'll talk about that again in a second. But, but David asks God for permission to go out. God, of course, gives him permission. And then let's pick up in verse 9 and 10. <clears throat> it says, So David and his 600 men set out, and they came to the brook Besor. But 200 of the men were too exhausted to cross the brook, so David continued the pursuit with 400 men. This seems kind of like an insignificant detail. It'll become more significant as we keep, keep talking, but I don't want to take too long on it right now. What happens is, some of the guys are tired, and they can't go. I do think it's funny that the, this particular translation uh, talks about it as a brook. They said they're too tired to cross a brook. You know, a brook is kind of, it's not really a lot of water. So if you're too tired to cross a brook, maybe you should stop and take a nap. I'm just saying, because if, if that's going to take it all out of you, then you, sh- you should probably rest. But it, but it says 200 guys. Now, here's the thing. David doesn't sweat it. David doesn't plead with them. He doesn't say, but guys, we need you. He doesn't, he doesn't let it bother him. He just says, you guys need to stay here. Stay here. God's got this battle anyway. This isn't mine anyway. I'm just going to keep going. And I want to remind you, especially, especially those of you who are in an age where, and it looks like most of you in the room are, are in an age where you're kind of entering some new phases in adulthood and young adulthood where you know, you might be looking for that, that special someone at some point in time, looking for a, that job that's going to take you for, for the rest of your career, all those kinds of things. There's going to be people who are going to come alongside you, and then there's going to be times when those people leave. Don't sweat it when they leave. Sometimes they're just meant to stay by the brook, and you've got to keep going. Not everybody's called to the same battle you're called to. That's just the way it is. Um, you know, we... And even in ministry, you know, there are some people who are called to minister to youth, some to children, some to the church at large, some to volunteers, some to be ushers, some to count the offerings, some to run the sound. We don't all fight the same battle, but we're all on the same team. And just because somebody doesn't cross the brook with you doesn't mean they're a bad person. You don't have to go to Applebee's after church and talk bad about them, okay, because they didn't cross the river with you. If they don't go to battle with you, that's okay. Leave them there. Move on. God's got this. He's going to take care of you, okay? Let's move on. Verse 11, we'll read real fast. Along the, way, um, along the way, they found an Egyptian man in a field and brought him to David. They gave him some bread and some, uh, to eat and some water to drink. And we're going to jump to verse 16 and read a good chunk here. It says, so he led David to them, that he being the Egyptian guy. So he led David to them, and they found the Amalekites spread out across the fields, eating and drinking and dancing because of the vast amount of plunder they had taken from the Philistines in the land of Judah. David and his army rushed in among them and slaughtered them throughout that night and the entire next day until evening. 
None of the Amalekites escaped except 400 young men who fled on camels. David got back everything the Amalekites had taken, and he rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, small or great, son or daughter, nor anything else that had been taken. David brought everything back. He also recovered all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock. This plunder belongs to David, they said. I throw that verse in about the Egyptian guy because I don't know that they were expecting to find an Egyptian guy on the road that would help them find uh, the, the people they were looking for. And I only throw that in just to say, on your journey of life, God's going to throw some curveballs at you. Some things you weren't expecting, you're going to get help and direction uh, from people that you weren't expecting to get it from. Some of, uh, when I was a young youth pastor, I, I once met with this lady. I don't even have time to describe how crazy this lady was. <laughs> but God spoke through that lady. She, he spoke into my life through that lady. I mean, and she was chain smoking and everything the whole time. It did not add up in my mind. In my young spiritual mind, I said, God, there's no way you could be speaking through this lady. Yet he was. Um, and so God sends you help sometimes from unexpected places. Don't turn it away, <laughs> okay? It's just, that's just a freebie that I'm just throwing in there. So it says that when David and his men, they arrive, David's got 400 of his men, and they arrive at this valley, and it's dark. And they see the Amalekites, they're spread out. It says they're throwing a party, okay? Um, because they've conquered all these, these lands, they've gotten all this stuff, and, uh, and they're throwing a party. Now, I, I don't pretend at all to be an expert in, in ancient warfare, but I know one thing. It's a lot easier to fight your enemy when you can see them, right? Just kind of makes sense. If I can see you, it's a little easier to hit you with something that will you know, move you out of my way or whatever. So... Um, so I think it's interesting that David gets there, it's dark. And if in my mind, I'd say, hey, let's camp out. We'll kind of spread out. We'll make a plan tonight. And when, when morning comes, the sun comes up, we're going to rush in there and we're going to take care of business. But not David. David, David I just, you just have to believe that David's telling himself, I can't fight this battle by human logic because it's not human might that's going to win this battle anyway. This is God's battle. And so God told me to go get them. I'm going to go get them. So it doesn't matter if it's dark. It doesn't matter if they're tired. Remember, 200 of the guys are so tired, they couldn't even go with them. So he gets there with 400 tired guys. They don't rest. They go right into battle. It says they fought all night, the entire next day, and the entire next night before they win. And I think it's interesting. We have no idea how many Amalekites there were, but it says the only guys who got away were the 400 guys with camels. David only had 400 guys. <laughs> so somehow David comes in and he takes on this army that's got to be significantly larger than the one he has. They don't lose a man. And not only that, they recover everything that was stolen from them. Yeah. Everything plus the stuff they stole from other people. <laughs> Isn't that kind of interesting? You're like, it was already stolen, so I guess God just decided it was David's. Um, I, I'm not really going to touch that one. I'm not going to go into that one, but, but, uh, but, but, but David got it. So there's, um, there's just something inside the heart of God that tells us people that there are moments when we just have to run into the dark to rescue the weak. There's just those moments where it doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. 
Logic says it's a bad idea. Logic says you should wait, you should do it different, you should do it another way. But there are just moments where it's appropriate for God's people to run into the dark to rescue the weak. And that's exactly what David does. And because he does that, because he's willing to be obedient, God gives him back everything that was taken from him plus. And you know, um, that's what missions is in a sense. It's to run into the dark to rescue the weak. And, and I don't want to over-dramatize it. I don't want to make missions sound as if it's something more fantastic than it is. There are some really bad days as a missionary. There are days you get a stomach bug and you don't leave your house or the bathroom for two days. You know what I'm saying? Like there's some things that I don't want to make it sound like we're these great spiritual warriors and wherever we go, our shadow touches people and they're healed and all these things. But, but that's what missions is, running to the dark to rescue the weak. That's what ministry really is. That's even your role in ministry is to run into the dark and rescue the weak. It doesn't have to be on foreign soil. You don't have to cross a border to do this. This is something God's called all of us to do. And um, I know, I'll tell you a little bit of my, my story here real fast, and then we'll kind of close some things up. But I know God called us to serve kids and kids in difficult situations a lot because of some things that happened with me when I was a kid. Um, my dad is from Central America, from Belize, which is close to Honduras. And uh, when my, when my dad left when I was two, so I didn't really know him. We would see him every once in a while. But when I was in the first grade, I don't remember if I was uh, seven yet. I think I was still six. My mom had a nervous breakdown, and she ended up in really the best way to say it is a, is a mental hospital for two and a half years. And we didn't have anybody. We didn't have any family. My dad didn't want to take us, felt like he couldn't. Um, and so it was me and my three brothers. I have an older brother and a younger brother. And, and it was just us. And my aunt lived in the area. She had never had kids, had never been married, and felt very kind of underqualified to care for three boys. So she, we were staying with her while the paperwork was being processed, and we were being put into foster care. And I remember um, all too clearly sometimes what it felt like to be a child with no hope. I remember sitting in the bedroom, waiting for the lady from the foster care agency to come pick us up from the state of California with my two brothers, and they were going to separate us. Um, mostly because my older brother was too old to stay with us, so they were going to take at least him away. And I remember very clearly what it felt like to be without hope. And, um, you know, God does some amazing things in some amazing ways, and I feel bad that this can't be the story for every child, but as the lady came, my aunt signed all the papers and everything, to, to remove us from her custody and take us into the custody of the state of California. We literally were placed in the vehicle when my aunt came back out bawling and said she couldn't let us leave. And so she signed a whole new set of papers to become our foster parents uh, for, for those two and a half years that my mom was in the hospital. My story's got a really good ending, right? Um, that... that uh, that God really provided an instant way for us to be out of that. And I still dealt with a lot of things. In fact, I was telling uh, Andrew and Anna while we were eating, 
I, I got really weird when I was a kid. My life was so chaotic that I had to put order into things in weird ways. So I would always take the same number of steps with my right foot that I took with my left foot. And I always chewed my food even number of times before I swallowed. And a lot of very strange things because there was no order. My, my life was chaos. So I had to put order in there. So I did. And um, if there's anybody else that's a weird eater in here, I'm with you. So um, this, this is just a right and a wrong way to eat things, you know? So... Um, but, but it was, uh, I don't even know why I threw that one in there, but, but it was a hard time for us. I mean, even living with my aunt, my aunt didn't know how to take care of kids, and we did have some issues because of that. And, um, and we did, you know, I, I have dealt with even into adulthood feelings of abandonment and things like that. And, and thankfully, God has taken me through those things. But we deal with kids in, in Honduras that they don't have that happy ending, um, they most of the time will end up on the street or with some secondary third family member, somebody way down the line that doesn't take very good care of them. And, and um, so we have kind of an uphill battle sometimes when we deal with at-risk at kids in Honduras. And our job is to run into the dark and fight for them. And it's not just my job, it's your job. It's all of our job. It's something we do together. We're the body of Christ. That's not just something we throw out there because it's a, it's a fun way to say something. But we're the body of Christ. We are truly and totally in this together. What we do, we do together. In the next little portion of scripture I read, we're going to illustrate that. We're, same same uh, story, 1 Samuel 30, verse 21 through 24. Then, this is after the, the whole battle, they recovered everything. Then David returned to the brook Besor and met up with the 200 men who had been left behind because they were too exhausted to go with them. They went out to meet David and his men, and David greeted them joyfully. But some evil troublemakers among David's men said, they didn't go with us, so they can't have any of the plunder we recovered. Give them their wives and children and let them be gone. <clears throat> but David said, no, my brothers, don't be selfish with what the Lord has given us. He has kept us safe and helped us defeat the band of raiders that attacked us. Who will listen when you talk like this? We share and share alike, those who go to battle and those who guard the equipment. Now, um, I, I minister in Honduras. I'm actually just in the U.S. for a couple of weeks. I've been here for two weeks. I'm here for two weeks more, and I'm going back. Um, at some point in time, Andrew and Anna will be there with me. Some of us go out, and some of us stay behind. But in the end, we share the reward. In fact, the Bible tells us, David and his men, they meet by a river, but the Bible tells us that in heaven there's a river, the river of life. And I have a feeling one day we're all going to stand there and we're going to talk about the victories that have been won in Honduras because of what we've done together, how we went to battle together. You may not go physically, but you go with me. You go with them. You may not ever set foot in Honduras but when you support them in prayer, you send them a letter, you send them a Facebook message, let them know that you're thinking about them. You go with them. And when, when a good thing happens, when a kid gets saved, man, I got a great story. I, I'm just going to tell a story because it's such a good story through our, our schools. I was, my goal was to end right now. And I'm like 30 seconds from it, but I'm going to tell a story anyway. There's a boy named Alejandro. I just, uh, I've known Alejandro since we've been there, but I just sat down and did an interview with him. And I found out Alejandro's this great kid. He's got this, this great smile. He looks like he should be on the Disney Channel. He's just like, the kid's just too good looking, really, is what it comes down to. It makes me jealous, you know, because I'm like, 
the mold for gorilla cookies kind of a thing. So, like, but, so I just, sometimes kids like that just upset me. So, anyway, so this kid, Alejandro, he's a great kid. He's always helping at school and everything, and when I go and visit his school, and, and I start talking to him about his story, and I hear more about his story. So I sat down, I did an interview. We're producing a video on him, but he's, uh, he's just finished the seventh grade, and when he, he started school at this school in the first grade, and he started at this school because his grandma wanted to put him there because his parents were drug addicts and alcoholics, and she wanted some kind of a positive influence in his life. So his grandma makes sure he goes to a Christian school. So he goes in first grade. They don't go to church or anything like that. He's just going to school. And over time, people invite him to church, but he never goes. Um, you know, he's, he's more kind of pursuing his, his family's lifestyle. But in the, the first couple of weeks of sixth grade, there was a chapel service. And I don't know exactly what, what was shared that day, but the Holy Spirit moved on Alejandro's life, and he accepted Jesus as his Savior that morning. So he goes home, and he tells his dad, Dad, I'm serving God now. I don't want you to drink in front of me anymore. I don't want you to do drugs in front of me anymore because I'm a child of the king. And his dad says, I can respect that. I'm not going to stop doing it, but I'll stop doing it in front of you. So um, Alejandro goes for a year. He gets in discipleship. I don't know if you, Royal Rangers, I know in the U.S. is not a big deal anymore, but it's huge in Latin America. He gets involved with Royal Rangers, great discipleship program for him. And, and um, he really starts to grow in the Lord. And he realizes that he needs to start ministering to his parents. So he starts inviting them to church because he doesn't know what to say. But he knows if he can get them to church, the pastor will know what to say. So he starts inviting them to church, and, and they don't want to go. They don't want to go. After a full year of inviting his family to church, his mom finally comes to church. She didn't hate it the first Sunday, so she comes back the sec a second Sunday, and she accepted Jesus that Sunday. About three weeks later, his dad came, and he also accepted Jesus. And right now, they're on the worship team. They're getting ready to be baptized in March. And it's all because there was somebody there to minister to the life of a child. Not just his parents, but his aunts and uncles are all coming to Jesus right now. We're talking, these are huge partiers, drug addicts like crazy. And they're getting saved because a little boy thought it was important enough to tell his parents about Jesus. Guys, the stuff that we do as Christians, we come and we, we have fun at church and we see people we love and see people we know and we believe these things. I honestly believe that we believe these things in the depth of our hearts, but there has to come a moment where we take action on what we believe, those things we feel, those, those awesome feelings you get when you're in worship, the little, the little goosebumps that you get on your arms sometimes, that's more than just to make you feel good. Listen, I, God wants you to feel good. He wants you to feel good about yourself. He wants you to feel good in his presence. That's great. But it's more than that. There's people out there that are lost and are dying. And somebody's got to tell them. Somebody's got to fight for them. Somebody's got to do the unconventional thing, the thing that doesn't make sense. Somebody's got to go out and take up a sword and a shield and run into the dark and fight for them. And whether you do that in Honduras or you do that in India or you do that in Africa, or you do it right here in Alabama. It doesn't matter, but there's a battle to be fought, and there's warriors that need to be sent into that battle. And so what I want to do as we, we finish up is it's time to go to war. You know, um, I was glad to hear that you guys have altar time in your youth meetings because I think the worst thing we could do in church 
is give people the, the truth of God's word and then not give them any way to act on it. And uh, if you're anything like me, you've got to act on it right away or you forget. So I might be a little ADD. So um, <laughs> thankfully, I've grown out of it for the most part. So I went from ADD to just high cholesterol. So, um, but we, sorry, I do this all the time. I'm like in this real serious moment that I start cracking jokes. But, um, but that doesn't negate the fact of what God wants to do in us right now. So, um, you know, missions is something that happens all over the place. I don't want to say, you know, everything is missions and every person's a missionary. It's true on one level. And then on another level, there's, there's some more to it. But what we all are are warriors. That's who God created us to be. And um, maybe you've been sitting by the river for a little too long and it's time for you to get into battle. But why don't you do this? Stand with me. I don't know how you guys usually handle music or something, but I want to I wanna just pray with some of you if I can. Um, let's do this right where you are. You don't have to close your eyes. You don't have to bow your head. But if you just kind of find a way to just shut out the rest of the world for just a moment. And I want you to think about the battle that God's sending you to. For some of you in here, it might be the mission field. It might be some remote part of the world that God's calling you to. I don't really know. But I trust the Holy Spirit to speak that to you. It might be your school. It might be where you work. It might be specific family members. I told you about my brothers, but neither one of my brothers right now is serving the Lord. I fight a battle in Honduras, but I fight a battle for my brothers too. And uh, there's a war to be fought. There's a battle in front of us. And I want to take you back to the beginning where God broke David's heart for the loss that he saw. The only way that you'll really be prepared to go into battle is if you go in brokenhearted. If you go in knowing the destruction that you see in people's lives, destruction that comes by way of a needle or a bottle, destruction that comes in so many different forms by way of abuse, whatever it is. But there's so much destruction in the world around us. And there's just gotta be a moment we allow the deep part of God to cry out to the deep part of us and break our hearts and call us to battle. And I'm praying that right now would be that time for some. So what I want to do is I'm just going to open the altar. And if you're ready to go to battle, you're ready for the anointing that God wants to put on you to prepare you to go. You're ready to be broken hearted so that you can go into the dark and fight for the weak. And I want you to come here. You can stand. You can kneel. But we're going to cry out to God for his power, for his anointing, and for his presence. Just come and fill this place up.